We're in Acts chapter 8 today, if you go ahead and join me there. It's going to be a fun morning, folks. Acts chapter 8 this morning. Um, We've mentioned on a number of occasions as we've gone through the book of Acts how um, oftentimes it's referred to as the Acts of the Apostles or whatnot. And we've kind of challenged you with that and said, you know, really ought to probably refer to more as the Acts of the Holy Spirit because... Holy Spirit's, you know, mentioned over 50 times in the in the text, and we see him quite active throughout. Um, what's interesting as we look at this um, section today, um, what's often overlooked about the book of Acts is we, we, we see the Holy Spirit mentioned frequently, but we actually see angels mentioned on a few occasions as well, and they're used to guide and direct individuals. And so we have the Holy Spirit being quite active in the book of Acts, we see the, the um, angel of the Lord being used at times to direct. We're going to see that in, in Philip's life today. And all of that as we look at it, and we're going to see it today, reminds us that it's God who is building his church in the book of Acts. It's really what it's all about. Jesus promised that he would build his church. And that's what we see. And it's easy to kind of forget that because we focus on the apostles doing their thing and and the miracles that are happening and all that. But it's really critical that we stop and remember that what's taking place is God is doing exactly what he promised he would do, which is to build his church, which will ultimately result in the coming of Jesus Christ back to earth and him taking his throne with a new Jerusalem, the whole bit. But it's all about God doing his work. And sometimes I kind of think maybe we as an American church forget that. We do all kinds of things. And if we look at, you know, we were I was talking yesterday with somebody about um, kind of what's going on within the American church and... We look at the way that we do things sometimes and the big buildings we build and, and the coffee shops we do inside and look at the Christian music industry and all these things which have been wonderful. I mean, I love Christian music, but in many respects it's become this industry, you know, and, and we do things to make ourselves popular and it's almost like, you know, when you go and you talk to Jesus and say, you know, these great things! And you wonder if Jesus is going, well, yeah, you did all these great things, and but really... Was it me doing all those great things or not? And sometimes I wonder about that, and I look at what happens with pastors who have had to be removed from ministry because of any number of sins or whatnot, and and a year later they're back at it somewhere else doing the same thing in the same way because it's really, they're building their ministry or their church or other things, and so we get a lot, and sometimes we just got to stop and go, no, you know what? This is the Lord building His body the church. And I think we're going to be reminded of that today as we're looking at what he does with Philip here. We're going to see the references um, or the, the, the sections of this kind of play out. Ultimately, we're going to see God's divine work. And I'm going to break this down into five sections today um, that point to God actually doing the work in Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch's heart here, and it's just going to be a good reminder that um, it's him that's doing everything. And in some respects, Philip's just along for the ride. So let's go ahead and look at that. The first thing I want to see is the Lord's divine directive. These are all going to be, we're going to do alliteration today. One of these days I'm going to get Dustin to do some alliteration. You know, teach him how to use the, you know, P words or C words or whatever. These are all going to be some D words for you today. We're going to see the Lord's divine directive. 
to Philip here. We've been introduced to Philip back in Acts chapter 6, you remember. We saw the amazing results of his ministry as he went down among the Samaritans in chapter 8, the first probably eight verses or so. Remember, he was run out of Jerusalem during the great persecution after Stephen's death. And like so many others, he, if we're told in verse 4, if you jump back and look at verse 4 there, it just simply says that he went about preaching the good news of the word. And so he was scattered, pushed out of Jerusalem, sent away from his home, from the persecution, and immediately he just picked up where he left off, apparently, in Jerusalem and was preaching the word. He went down to the city of Samaria. It says he began to proclaim Christ. He was performing signs and wonders. And as a result, men and women were told, were getting saved and were being baptized. When the apostles in Jerusalem actually heard about it, they sent Peter and John down to them. They witnessed this new work of God among the Samaritans. It was probably somewhat shocking or surprising because the Samaritans were outcasts. They weren't accepted by the Jews. They were sort of half-breeds is one way to say it. And so Peter and John... Or Peter and, and um, John are down there and they're seeing this and become convinced that the Lord is working among the Samaritans. When, we, when they sensed the ministry in the city was complete, then Philip, Peter, and John all started making their way back to Jerusalem, we're told. But along the way, Philip was given a divine, a divine directive by an angel of the Lord. Look at verses 25 through 26. Acts chapter... 8 verse 25. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So you basically think they're done in Samaria, so they start heading back to Jerusalem. Probably at this point, some of the persecution may have may have settled down a little bit. And part of it might have been because Paul was now focusing on the or Saul was focusing on areas outside of Jerusalem. He pretty much destroyed the church in Jerusalem, or so he had thought. And he now is on his way to Damascus and other places outside. And so things might have settled down a little bit in Jerusalem. So Peter and John are going back to Jerusalem. Philip is going back with them. But it's interesting that they're preaching along the way. They're taking advantage of those cities as they go along the way. But then something happens. Verse 26, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So as they traveled, they're preaching the gospel, and then all of a sudden, this angel appears to Philip. He says, go south. Go down to that desert road, the text says. It's somewhat of a parenthetical statement, and to be real honest, it's a little bit odd, the way the statement is phrased. The more literal phrase is, this is a desert. So he basically says, go south, This is a desert. It's unclear what the word this refers to. It could refer to the the, the road itself that he was sending him toward. That's why the New American Standard translates it as this is a desert road. But the word road is not there. It's just this is a desert. But nobody knows what this really refers to. could refer to the road. But it could also refer to Gaza. At the end of the verse, um, it's kind of interesting. The English Standard Version, the King James, and others... Um, translate it simply as this is a desert place or this is a deserted place or this is a desert. There were two cities of Gaza in southern Israel, but one of them was actually destroyed around 96 BC. It was referred to as the desert Gaza. When you kind of put the pieces together here, what it appears is happening here is that this angel is speaking to Philip 
And it's basically saying, I'm sending you down there to the desert Gaza, a deserted area, a place that's been destroyed. And that's rather odd because you would wonder why. Why would he be sending him down to this somewhat deserted area? All we know at this point in the text is that he's got this divine directive to do it. An angel says, go. I'm sending you down to the desert. Now, if it were me, I would consider myself somewhat rational. And I would say, uh, Lord, you realize it's kind of desert. Now, Philip was an evangelist. I would think Philip would go, who am I supposed to evangelize? A bunch of cacti? So, we've got this divine directive, the Lord saying, go. Doesn't reveal all of it yet. But the angel is speaking to him. And so the first thing we see here is the Lord directing Philip to go to an area that he probably wouldn't have chosen to go to. So we have this divine directive. Now we're going to find out here in a second there's a reason for it. The second D here is that the Lord had a divine appointment for Philip. A divine appointment. Look at verses 27 through 29. So he got up and he went. I love that about Philip. He realized that's a desert. That's dry. What am I supposed to do down there with my skills? I'm an evangelist. But it says, okay. It says he got up and he went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So we've had the angel speak to him. Now we've got the Spirit speaking to him. Luke describes this happening here as a rather unexpected or surprising encounter. Unfortunately, what's interesting is most English translations leave out a word here. And it's the word, behold. What Luke actually says here is, behold! as he sees this eunuch. Why? Because it's shocking. It's unexpected. What is this eunuch doing in this, what would have been a glorious chariot, a fairly wealthy chariot, because he was working for the queen. He was basically her her finance director, a very prominent, important individual. Says that he's from Ethiopia. Means he was from the ancient kingdom of Cush. It's not the same as Ethiopia today. It was in southern Egypt, Probably the area of just northern Africa, called Sudan now. But he wasn't just any Ethiopian. We're told that he was a eunuch. He was a court official for the queen. It just says Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Candace wasn't her name, that was a title. Much like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Candace is actually a title. Another way to probably translate this was that she was a royal woman. So you might say something like her highness, queen of the Ethiopians. Um, most people believe that she was from a place called Nubia. I'm not really sure. There was a famous queen there. Manatore was her name. We know who she is. They believe that's who this probably was. A very famous queen from this place called Nubia. She was a royal woman. And so here's this eunuch who worked for her, took care of her finances, and we're told here that he had come to Jerusalem to worship, which means that he was probably a proselyte, meaning he had probably converted to Judaism. He was not Hebrew. He was not Jewish. He would have been a black man. 
And so we're told that he had come to worship. Now what's interesting about this is he must have been rather devout because the trip was probably about 1,500 miles to get to Jerusalem, which means that by carriage it would have taken him at least three months to get there one way. So this man had come from Ethiopia, traveled three months to Jerusalem to worship, and was now on the way back, which would have been another three-month trip. He was obviously a very devout individual, which is all the more striking considering, again, he was probably a proselyte. Wasn't brought up or raised in it, most likely. The last thing we're told about him, personally, is that he was stopped along the road, sitting in his chariot, and he was reading from the book of Isaiah. We'll find out where in a second. Now, it wasn't just some happenstance. We'll go back and read verse 29 again, just real quickly here. It says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this man in his chariot. This was a divine appointment. So we have this divine directive. Go down to the desert area. I've set up this appointment for you, Philip. So here's Philip the evangelist with all his gifts in a place where you wouldn't expect him to be sent, meeting an Ethiopian eunuch in a place you wouldn't expect him to be. And so we have this divine appointment that the Lord arranged. What do you think the chances are of that all just sort of happening? I guess it could, but... The text indicates here that this has all been orchestrated by the Lord. The next thing we're going to see here is the Lord's work. I'm going to title this divine openness. In other words, the Lord's work, his divine openness in the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch. Look at verses 30 through 34. Philip ran up. I love that too. First off, we tell, you know, the Lord says, go down to that desert area. He's like, okay, I'm in. And he goes, without complaint, without hesitation. Then he comes across this Ethiopian eunuch in his carriage. And the spirit now says, go up to him. And it says he runs. He's excited to do it. And so it says, Philip ran up. And heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was, or he was led as sheep to a slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away, and he will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus told his disciples that the harvest was plentiful, but the workers are few means that there are people out there that are ready to hear. They just need people to talk to them. It means it's already been taken care of. Jesus has planted the seeds. He's watered the soil. He's tilled the ground. I guess that would come first. You can tell I'm not a farmer. I would have just destroyed my crop. But the harvest is plentiful. They just need somebody sent to them, somebody to walk them through, somebody to fill in the pieces of the puzzle. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. And I've been working a lot more from home. I work from home typically, but working a lot more from home. I looked at my expense report this month, and I'm like, huh, four trips to Worthington and one to Dayton, which for me is next to nothing. That's normally a week or two. 
But I spent an awful lot of time at home, and it, you, I've shared with this, you before, this with you before. One of the reasons I like being a tent maker, meaning have a job outside paying the bills, is, is because I'm not an evangelist by gifting, and I'll be real frank and honest, not by heart. Meaning, you know, God gifts us in certain ways, and we have a tendency to use our gifts in those ways and want to be used in those ways. And so I'm a teacher. Which means that you're not generally going to find me out on the street corner preaching or uh, you know at a bus stop wanting to share the gospel with somebody. For me, it's more driven by Christ's commands to do it. And it's not that I don't want to see people saved. It's just you know, if like if you're an artist, you love to paint, right? It's not like you go, oh, I got this great, amazing gifts as an artist, and my pictures are phenomenal, but I hate painting. You know, normally it's like you love doing it, right? So for me. I'm not a, a gifted evangelist. God has not chosen to use me necessarily in that way, but yet I understand the commands to do it, and I, and I want to see people come to Christ. And so I like having a secular job, I call it, because it puts me in front of unsaved people all the time, and it opens up some doors, and it reminds me that they're lost, and they need to hear, and it challenges me some to do it. And so I'm at home, and I'm going, a little more difficult, Lord. So I started praying. Lord, you know, give me some opportunity here. Open some doors for me. And so I was talking to a gentleman down in Dayton. I used to be able to see him on a regular basis. I've shared about him before. Well, I texted him. He had meniscus surgery, and it's not gone well. And so I texted him the other morning. And I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, call me. So we talked. And in the middle of that conversation, he brought up spiritual things. <laughs> oh, okay, I guess I can now talk, Lord. You know, I guess I can now, you know, talk to you about this. And um, so anyway, it's, it's, it puts me in a place where God can now sort of use me in those things. And so you might call that a, a divine appointment. You might, you might um, say that God kind of directed that. But the reality of it is, I didn't have to bring it up. The harvest. God had already been working in him, the harvest. I got a chance to spell out the gospel for him one more time. The harvest is there. They just need somebody to talk to them. So here's this this Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip is there, and he runs up to the chariot, and we find that the harvest is right there. Look at what happens. Philip, see what he finds when he approaches this, this chariot. He finds somebody whose heart is open to hearing and understanding the gospel and the word of God. He hears the man reading from the prophet Isaiah, but it's not just any passage. It happens to be Isaiah chapter 53, which we know is all about who? Jesus. Now, how do you suppose that just happened to work out? He just happens to be reading from Isaiah 53 about Jesus, and he just happens to be on this desert road when this evangelist, Peter, who's gifted in talking about Jesus, who's excited to do it, just happens to be there along the road. I think we see the Lord's hand here working this stuff out. So he runs up. When Philip gets up into the chariot, he asks the man a question. Basically he says, do you understand what you're reading? I think he didn't expect a yes or no answer. I think it was a rhetorical question. He could have said, hey, I notice." I'm listening. You happen to be reading from Isaiah 53. You know what that's about? I can tell you who that's about. 
So it was likely a rhetorical question designed by Philip to engage the man in a discussion about Jesus Christ, because that's what Philip's like to, Philip liked to do. Talk about Jesus. Philip clearly understood the importance of the passage as related to Christ, and he saw it as an opportunity to talk to this man about Jesus. Now we immediately see this man's we see his eagerness in God's word. There's two statements he makes that both tell us that. The first one is this. How could I understand unless somebody guides me? There must have been something in this man that when Philip says, do you understand it? Something in this Ethiopian eunuch told him, he must be able to explain this to me. He recognized that he was having difficulty understanding it. And so, this strange man on the side of the road, hey, do you know what you're talking, you know what you're reading there? Something in this Ethiopian eunuch, I think, led him to think, hey, no, I, I don't. I need somebody to guide me. Is that you? Again, probably the work of God. The second thing he says is verse 34. Please tell me. Explain it to me. Who does the prophet say this of? Is it of himself or somebody else? Well, let's just look back at those words briefly here. Verse 32, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? One of the things this Ethiopian eunuch understood was that sometimes an Old Testament author, as he would write, like David maybe in the Psalms, or Jeremiah in this case, or I'm sorry, Isaiah, um, would write something, and it could apply to them, but he understood that oftentimes it applies to somebody else. And he's having difficulty digesting all of that. He's reading it, he's trying to understand it. The Lord's working in his heart, but he needs a little bit of help. You know, it's, this is one of the things that humbles me tremendously. I am no smarter than the next guy. But the scriptures tell us that the Lord has placed into the body teachers and pastors and shepherds. There's a reason for that, a purpose for that. I've spent time studying. I've spent time in seminary. I spend hours every week working through the scriptures. Why? So I can explain what this says because I understand that within the body, some might struggle a little bit, much like this Ethiopian eunuch. And they need help and guidance. And that's exactly what we see happening here. But what really stands out to me isn't so much that, but the fact that there's this openness here to want to understand. And so here he is reading, and he desperately wants to understand what's there. And what's interesting to me about this is what John or what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, that I think applies. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one comes to the Father, or no one can come to the Father, unless the Father, here you go, the Father who sent me draws him. Now, more literally, that word for draw is the word for drag. Let me say that more literally for you folks. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him to me. Now, what does he mean by that? Makes an amazing word picture, doesn't it? Because of sin, we rebel, we resist, we run away from God. But there he is, drawing us, pulling us, practically dragging us back to himself. 
Probably the best description of this comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and his tolerance and his patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's precisely what we see here. We have such a bent, such a hatred for God because of sin, that God had to reach down into creation, make a way for us to come to him, but even that wasn't enough because we still push back. We still rebel. And so it's as if the Lord is looking down and grabbing us and saying, just come with me. Just come on. And we're going, I don't want to come. I, don't, I know it's bad. I don't want to come. But the Lord is pulling us. It's like he's dragging us to come. He's not going to force us. You know, at some point we're face down and we're pushing back and he's dragging us. He's finally, you know. But he's pulling us. That's how we become open. Something has to take place in our hearts because of the callousness and the hardness in the work of the enemy. Something has to take place in our hearts for us to be open enough to want to listen and to accept. That's the nature of sin. Now, we struggle with that because we go, what about, you know, we got... Sovereignty of God. We've got man's free will. It's my choice, right? It is hard to put those two together. Sometimes they're both true. But the reality of it is we kick and scream and God is working at dragging us to Him, begging us to accept His offer of grace. But that openness, when we finally look and go, yeah, I'm willing to accept it, takes a work of God. And so what we have in this Ethiopian eunuch here is God working. Not only do we see him with this, this, this divine calling on Philip to go to the desert, not only do we see this divine appointment that the Lord has set up, but even with the Ethiopian eunuch we see this divine openness where the Holy Spirit, the work of God, has softened his heart for that appointment. He's the harvest. And he's been prepared so that Peter, or I'm sorry, so that Philip can now talk to him. And so we see God's work even in this Ethiopian eunuch, in this divine openness that we see with the Lord softening his heart. I believe that happened to me. I was raised in a home where I heard about Jesus. I knew knew who he was. I knew the stories. I was raised in a Catholic church. But I was still rebellious. And I remember when I got to college, I was depressed. I was lonely. I was suicidal. And here's this guy, I'm, I'm, I literally would talk to my mom about this a couple weeks ago on the phone. I said, you know, you remember when I used to go out for walks at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd come home and she'd be up and she'd see me, wondering why I was out at 3 in the morning, just wandering. Well, I would go out and I would cry and I would weep and I would pray because I was so miserable and I would beg God to help me. I get to college and here's this guy, Bob Kegel, hey, let's talk about Jesus. And I called him a Jesus freak. I said, I'm not interested. And for six months... I pushed this guy away all the time. God's dragging me, pulling me, and I'm going, no! Until one day, my heart was softened to where I went into his room and said, tell me about Jesus. You've been wanting to do this for six months. How does that happen? It's the work of God. That's the divine openness that God can create in our heart. And so he does that here with this this eunuch. And so we see this divine openness take place. It tells us that God is at work. He's building his church. And he does that all around us. Over here and over here and over here. Preparing people to hear, to be open. 
Now, we don't really see that. We look right now at the world around us, and we see this increase in persecution and hatred, and that happens too. But there are people out there whose hearts are softened, who God is still drawing to himself, who are part of the harvest, simply waiting for a Philip to show up. Let's move on to the next section. I'm going to call this the Lord's divine conviction, because with that openness, oftentimes will come conviction. Let's look at verses 35 through 38. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from the scripture, or this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as a eunuch, and he baptized him. So let's talk about this divine conviction here. I love the phrase that he preached Jesus to him because it reminds me that what the unsaved need most is to hear about Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul wrote that God had given him grace to do one thing, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Let that just sink in for a moment. While it's important to preach the whole counsel of God's word and address the wickedness of sin we see around us, to address moral issues, cultural decay, all those things, folks, those are all important, but what the unsaved need most is to hear about Jesus Christ. Maybe if we preached more about Jesus to the unsaved, and maybe preached about Jesus more than we do things like all the wicked we see around us, whether that be abortion or the whole LGBT thing or immorality or politics, maybe we'd see more reactions like we see in the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm not saying we don't need to address those things because we do. The church is supposed to be a light. What if we spent more time preaching about Jesus than we did about our personal comforts? The gospel is a very, I'll say it this way, the American gospel is a very self-centric, a very narcissistic thing. It's not the gospel of the Word of God. Peter talks an awful lot about suffering in his letters, both of them. You don't hear a whole lot of Joel Osteen come out of the Scriptures. People need Jesus Christ. I find it interesting when I hear preachers in evangelical churches who preach a whole entire message and not Jesus Christ is mentioned once, but all kinds of other good biblical things are. But those things are not all that important apart from Christ. I can preach all kinds of great Christian things to you folks, but if we don't talk about Jesus, they don't matter. Because what is it? It's religion. It's what the Jews struggled with. God gave them one thing to do. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. It didn't matter how they obeyed the law. Didn't matter how many sacrifices they made. Didn't matter how many times they went to the temple or the tabernacle. They weren't loving the Lord. It was just religion. And that's when Jesus came, what he had to confront. What people need is Jesus. And so what we find here with Philip is he gets up in the, in the chariot here. And he says, tell him about Jesus. It says from Isaiah 53 and through the rest of the scriptures. He's talked about Jesus. And as a result, 
His response is conviction. Notice he says, what prevents me from being baptized? It's another rhetorical question. He's not saying, huh, is there any particular reason I'm up in the chariot? I'd have to step down, Peter. Is there any reason why I couldn't get baptized? No, not Peter, but Philip. No. In essence, he's saying, why shouldn't I be? It's a rhetorical question. I should be baptized. John chapter 16, verse 8 says that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's exactly what we see here. I would imagine as Philip is preaching Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch, he's feeling convicted. He's recognizing his need for this man, Jesus. And so he responds by saying, I need to be baptized. Why should I not be? Why should I? And and in this time, the thing we have to remember is baptism is merely a way of saying, I'm getting saved. We don't kind of do it that way, do we? Which is a shame. I think when, when we lead somebody to Christ, we have to talk to them about baptism. I don't think it's necessary for salvation, but there's a declaration, a public declaration that takes place with baptism. And so when you find Peter say, repent and be baptized at Pentecost, what he's basically saying is, become a follower of Jesus, demonstrate it through baptism. That's the way we do it. And so what, in essence, here is happening is this eunuch is saying, I need to be saved. I need Jesus Christ. Let's do it, and let's do it right now. There's water right here. Why should I not? That's the conviction. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. That's what God does. Most Bible versions take out verse 37, because it's not found in most original manuscripts. Most people believe that it was probably added by a scribe. You might see brackets around it in your Bible, or it might be written in a different text or something. But it doesn't really matter, because there's nothing in that verse, verse 37, that would be contrary to anything in the Scriptures, would it? Most believe that the scribes put this there to put into the words of the mouth of the Ethiopian eunuch a profession of Christ and faith, or a profession of faith in Christ. But we know. You don't have to add that verse to it. I don't care if it's in the, in the version or not. It's just, again, it's not in the original manuscripts, but it's in later manuscripts, which generally means a scribe has added it for clarification, like a commentary. But the reality of it is, clearly he expresses faith in Christ here by asking to be baptized, because that's what baptism represented. And even the Ethiopian eunuch understood that. And so what we find here is this divine conviction of the Lord that takes place in his life. Let's look at the very last piece that's found in verses 39 through 40. And this is the Lord's divine direction now for Philip. Verses 39 through 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, And he passed through and kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, this is a a strange one for us because all of a sudden, um, Philip is raptured. He's taken to a different city. Taken up, transported away. Um, The estimate is about 34 miles. And so he's lifted from one place and put somewhere else. We can't explain it other than a divine act a miracle by the Lord, but it says here by the Spirit had actually taken him away and done that. And then you notice that it says that from there Philip continued to preach about Jesus as he traveled about 80 miles north along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea until he came to a place called Caesarea, which is in northern Samaria. 
Now what's interesting about this is in Acts chapter 1, you can read that on your own, but Acts chapter 1 verse 7, some 25 years later, Philip is now married with a family and he's still living in Caesarea. He never went back to Jerusalem. Remember how this whole passage started? He's going back to Jerusalem where his home is and the Lord says through the angel, "Uh uh-uh, desert. And then when he gets done there, you would think, okay, time to go home, Lord, back to Jerusalem. The Lord says, no, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to take you over here and then I'm going to let you find your way up the Mediterranean Sea and you're going to go up to a place called Caesarea. And then you're going to stay. And the Lord led him up to Caesarea, where he spent the rest of his life as far as we know. It was the Lord's divine direction for his life. In fact, he was an evangelist. He was committed to preach the gospel no matter where the Lord directed him. If you remember, the persecution in Jerusalem drove him out of Jerusalem. So what does he do? Goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel. The Lord picks him up, tells him to go down to Gaza, the desert area. What does he do? He goes down, he preaches the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Lord then transports him to another city, Astoth. What does he do? He preaches the gospel down in Astoth. Begins to find his way up the Mediterranean Sea. Keeps walking along the way. What does it tell us he does? He preaches the gospel. Gets up to Caesarea. Takes a wife. Has a family. What does he do in Caesarea? Preaches the gospel. Again, we find him there. He's actually referred to as Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 17. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 21. So we have this divine direction, the Lord directing his life, and he's willing to go wherever he's sent. I love the fact that at some points along that journey, he's not told why. Go to the desert. Okay. And he goes. Sucked up out of where he's at and transported miraculously somewhere else. We don't see him go, Lord, why? Sends him to Caesarea. Doesn't say, Lord, why? Why don't I get to go back home? He just goes where the Lord directs him. We see the Lord directing him exactly where he wants him to be. And he wanted him at Caesarea where ultimately he ends up meeting the Apostle Paul at one point. I think the most important thing, and this will be our conclusion or takeaway from this, the most important thing that we can take away, I think, from this passage is the Lord's work in hand in building his church. That's everything we've seen in here. We've, we've seen how there's nothing with, with chance here. He didn't just say, you know, you guys are all saved now. I'm going to go away for a little while. Just do your thing. It's all up to you. The book of Acts, through every part of it is this divine work of God building his church even when he saves the Apostle Paul, and we'll see this, when, when Ananias says, Lord, wait a minute. So the apostle, or the, this guy Saul, who's been murdering people in Jerusalem, nearly destroyed the church, he's now coming to Damascus here. You're telling me you want me to go talk to this guy. You, do you realize, Lord, what this guy has done? And the Lord says, go to him. He's my instrument I'm just sending you so that he might get his sight back, but then Ananias is the one that ultimately leads Paul to Christ. It's the Lord who does the work. There's no question there. He doesn't say, well, you know, I'm going to see if Paul's willing. He says, no, he's my instrument. Ananias, remember what I'm doing. I'm building my church. And that's what the book 
of Acts is about. We see the Lord's hand in every part of this. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus told Peter, I will build my church. It's precisely what we see in the book of Acts. We see it in a pretty striking fashion here with God directing Philip every step of the way we see his, his work, not just in sending Philip, but in working in the Ethiopian's heart, his openness to be willing to read, even though he doesn't understand, he wants to know, and then the conviction that we see. Now, most of us haven't been privileged to see such audible commands from angels or the Holy Spirit in our life directing us, but do you think for a moment that the Lord's not just as active here or in our own hearts and lives? This is just a reminder. It's not always super miraculous, you know. How many of you have ever been in a position where you felt or understood that maybe God has led you to this person to talk or to share or to comfort or other things? We just oftentimes chalk that up to, eh, just happens. How often do we go, wait, and that might have been a divine appointment. That might have been the Lord leading me to do that or directing me to do that. I got asked by one of my kids the other day, I don't remember who it was, but how I ended up here considering where I started. And it's interesting how I can go back over my life and I can kind of see how this unsaved college kid in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, who once told a girl he was dating, I will never be a pastor. How did I end up here? My first love was doing computer work, IT work. I still do that. But that's not my first love, really. I can see it all these interesting little twerks and turns where I thought I was going to do one thing and the Lord decided that I was going to do this. And I never heard an audible voice, but I saw how he orchestrated circumstances and things and brought me... I was two weeks away from going on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ with Josh McDowell. And somehow God sent me to seminary instead. So I look at my own life and I go, I can see how God has led me where he's... I can see how the other day on the phone talking to this gentleman in Dayton, how God directed all of that. He is just as active today in building his church, but we have to remember that it is truly him building his church and he's using us to do it. It isn't about us. And we have to be careful because it can become all about us, the way we do things, why we do things. We have to remember, no, the Lord is doing the Lord's work, building his church. And that's a good reminder for us, too, as we think about what's happening here in the United States with all of the stuff that we don't like that's going on around us right now. We have to stop and go, but wait a minute. If the Lord is building his church, what does it matter what's going around us? Does it? Can the Lord not deal with the stuff we see today? If he is building his church, if he took what happened in Jerusalem, where this man named Saul tries to wipe it out, and the Lord says, let me show you how this is going to work. I'm building my church. He is still active in doing that today, regardless. He just wants to use us to do it. So we remain open, let him direct us, Recognize the divine appointments. Recognize the harvest is out there. People need to hear. Not become discouraged. Just let God do the work that God is going to do, and we get to go along for the ride. But we have to be open and honest, much like Philip. When the Lord says, go, we should go. When he says, run up to the chariot, we should run up to the chariot. Right? There's a certain amount of comfort in that. 
for me because I'm very analytical. I look at the stuff that's going on around us right now and I'm a, I want to fix it. How do I fix it? You know? I don't like it. These people are idiots. How can they not see? The Lord is building his church. And all these things we saw today are just as true from this text. Maybe just we don't see the miraculous side of it all the time. It was a very different time in the early church. Some of the things the Lord did there were necessary. Some of these things he still does in other parts of the world. Sometimes he still does them here. But he's active. He's building his church. Amen?